The scripture today is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the days of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth bucket around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And if your feet fitted with the readiness that come from the gospel of peace. In addiction to all these, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming errors of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and this word of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit of all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a very sobering text that we have just read. And so no wonder the Apostle Paul ends the text the way he does. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly. Let us pray. Dear God, as we now um, press into the reality of which the text speaks today, I do pray that you would give us understanding and protection and fearless conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Finally, <clears throat> finally, that is how the Apostle Paul brings his letter to conclusion. Finally, finally be strong. Finally be strong in the Lord. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, be strong by putting on the whole armor of God. So that, so that you may be able to stand firm. To stand firm against the schemes of the enemy of God. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If it were only against flesh and blood, we could stand on our own, in our own strength, wearing our own armor. But our struggle is not just against flesh and blood. Some 50 years ago now, while serving as the Secretary General of the United Nations, Burmese diplomat Utong expressed his bewilderment over the state of the world. 
I quoted him when I preached on this text for FBC in 2013. Speaking before an audience of some 2,500 people who had gathered to talk about how to work toward world peace, Utong asks a number of searching questions. What element is lacking so that with all our skill and all our knowledge, we still find ourselves in the dark valley of discord and enmity? What is it that inhibits us from going forward together to enjoy the fruits of human endeavor and reap the harvest of human experience? Why is it that for all our professed ideals, our hopes, our skills, peace on earth is still a distant objective seen only dimly through the storms and turmoils of present difficulties? It is what the governor of California asked a few weeks ago after the mass shooting in San Jose, the 250th mass shooting in the United States this year. What is wrong with us? It is what people all over Canada are asking in light of the discovery of the unmasked graves of 215 children on the grounds of what was the residential school in Kenloops. How can this kind of atrocity happen in a supposedly civilized society? Part of the answer, a critical part of the answer to these questions, is what the Apostle Paul brings us face to face with in the conclusion to his letter. Our struggle, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. He's reminding us that more than human decisions and actions are involved in what is taking place in our world. And the more it is very sobering. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is written in two halves, as we have seen. Two halves of almost equal length, chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. I like to call chapters 1 to 3 the wonder of the gospel. I like to call chapters 4 to 5 the walk of the gospel. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul opens up for us reality as it is in light of Jesus. In light of the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, outpouring of the Spirit, and present kingly reign of Jesus. In chapters 4 to 6, Paul then opens up for us the everyday implications of reality as it is in light of Jesus. And the turning point of the letter comes in chapter 4, verse 1, with the word, therefore. In light of all that he develops in chapters 1 to 3, therefore. Therefore, I exhort you to walk. Not just, I urge you to live, as some translations render it, but I urge you to walk. That's because 
Paul is using the verb that the scripture he lived in all of his life uses for the life of faith, walk. For centuries, life with the living God was conceived as a walk. <laughs> scripture spirituality is peripatetic, <laughs> walk. Therefore, says Paul, walk. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he continues the second half of his letter in a series of therefore walk exhortations. 4.1, therefore walk. Walk in unity and in maturity. 4.17, therefore walk no longer in the ways of a world that does not yet acknowledge Jesus as Lord. 4.25, Walk, laying aside the ways of the world that have not yet surrendered to Jesus as Lord. 5.1, therefore, be imitators of God, walk in love. 5.7, therefore, walk as children of light. 5.15, therefore, be careful how you walk, being filled with the Spirit. And then at 6.10, finally, stand. Finally, I think it can be more literally rendered, henceforth. Henceforth, stand. Stand firm. Walk, 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 and then stand. Because as we keep walking, we will find ourselves in tension. That is putting it mildly. We find ourselves in a battle, and will so the rest of our lives until Jesus comes to make all things new. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Henceforth, stand firm. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We have no other choice but to be strong in the strength of the Lord. We, on our own, are no match for the invisible opposition all around us. We, on our own, are no match for the great enemy of the gospel. Only our Lord is strong enough to stand against him on his own, as we see him doing in that story of his 40 days in the wilderness, the story of his face-to-face -face encounter with his mortal enemy. Jesus stood he stood firm, the only one who ever has, the only one who ever can. And then through Paul, Jesus calls us to stand. How? In the strength of the Lord. And how do we do that? Paul answers, by putting on the full armor of God. Chapter 6, verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because we are in a battle with a very different kind of opponent, we stand by wearing very different kind of armor. Again, in the second half of his letter, Paul has ex been exhorting us to walk. Walk, 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 and then finally stand. Because as we walk, we will encounter opposition. 
Yes, human opposition, but more primarily, spiritual opposition. And we have to learn how to stand so that we can keep walking. And we stand as individuals and as a church, as the ecclesia of Jesus, by putting on the full armor of God. So, for the rest of our time, let us focus on that armor. Hear the text again. Chapter 6, verses 13 to 18. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your guard, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, therefore. He said stand four times now. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, which with you can extinguish the fiery missiles of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and praying at all times in the spirit. Not only does our Lord give us his strength for the battle, thanks be to his name, he gives us the right equipment to wear so we can stand in the battle. Because the battle is essentially spiritual, we need spiritual armor, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, sword of the spirit, praying at all times of the spirit, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, and praying at all times in the spirit. I want us to ask three questions. Oh, there are a whole lot more. When Justin assigned me one Sunday to preach on this text, I thought, dude, <laughs> you need about four or five. I want to ask three questions, three basic questions about this armor of God. Question one is, where did Paul get the imagery for this armor? Question two, what does this armor tell us about our opponent? And question three, how do we actually wear the armor? So question one, where did Paul get this imagery for the armor? Question two, what does this armor tell us about the nature and character of the opposition? And question three, how do we actually wear it? So question one, where did Paul get this imagery, this particular imagery of the armor? From two sources. First, from the Roman soldiers guarding him in jail. Remember, Paul is writing this letter and he's writing this sobering text from a jail cell. In the text he says, he, that he is an ambassador in chains, chapter 6, verse 20. Paul is writing from a Roman prison guarded by Roman soldiers, whom he realizes are not the real opposition. Paul actually names the pieces of armor we are to put on in the order in which a Roman soldier would put them on. Belt, breastplate, Shield, shoes, helmet, sword, and then appeal to their gods. In Paul's day, soldiers wore skirts, like Scottish kilts. 
And over these shirts, they wore a cloak called a tunic. When they were off duty, they let the tunic be untucked, hanging loose. But when they were called into action, they would gather the tunic up around their waist and buckle it with a belt, thus leaving their legs free to run and walk. In Paul's day, soldiers wore a breastplate. It was made of metal, and it was worn both on the front and the back. And it was designed to protect the vital parts of their bodies, to guard their hearts and lungs and stomach. In Paul's day, soldiers had special shoes. They were made of leather, but they had steel studs in the bottom of them, tied to their ankles and their shins with decorative straps. These special shoes kept the soldiers from slipping and sliding and gave them greater mobility when they went to walking. A number of historians have suggested that it was the attention given to Roman boots that accounted for Rome's ability to conquer the world. You hikers know the importance of footwear. In Paul's day, soldiers carried a special kind of shield. It was made of two layers of wood covered with linen and then with leather. And it was designed to defend against the most horrible weapon of that day, arrows soaked in pitch and then lit on fire. The arrows might be able to penetrate the leather and to a certain degree the wood, but the leather would at least extinguish the fire. Having put on this armor, the soldier then picked up and carried their swords and then took their stand against the enemy. So, Paul, watching the soldiers around him get ready, exhorts us to follow suit, pun intended. Paul also gets his imagery from the Old Testament, from the way God the warrior is described and from the way the warrior Messiah is described. Of the coming Messiah, the prophet Isaiah writes, righteousness will be the belt around his loins, faithfulness the belt around his waist. Of God, who comes to judge and rescue, Isaiah writes, he put righteousness on like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Which is why Paul calls the armor he exhorts us to put on the armor of God. <laughs> we are to take up and wear the very armor God wears, the very armor Jesus wore in his struggle with the ruler of darkness those 40 days in the wilderness. Now, these pieces of armor that Paul calls us to wear are designed to help us stand, but they are also chosen because they reveal the nature and character of the opposition. So, second question. What does the armor teach us about the nature and character of the opponent. Belt of truth. Why wear truth? <laughs> because the enemy is the great manipulator of truth. The enemy and his henchmen, the principalities and powers, as Paul calls them, mess with the truth. Oh, that's putting it mildly. The world forces of this darkness, as Paul calls the enemy, deliberately lie. Jesus calls the leader of the opposition a liar. 
the liar, John 8, 44. The devil, says Jesus, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In John 8, Jesus also calls the enemy the murderer. So Jesus is teaching us that the enemy seeks to destroy by lying. He seeks to destroy individuals and nations by lying, as he did in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, twisting God's word to Adam and Eve, making it say its exact opposite. You will be like God, the enemy told the first humans. When you seek to live apart from God, you will be like God. Flat out lie. The great lie at the root of all lies. You will not die, as God said. When you seek to live in your own wisdom and power, you will not die. You will be like God. The enemy seeks to destroy by lying. This is how evil has worked throughout history. Begin with lies. One little lie and then another little lie until the human conscience is so seared that it buys into the great lies. Adolf Hitler knew this, 20th century. One of the most awful examples, following the lead of power-hungry liars before him. One little lie at a time until even the church bought the lies. Hitler was followed by others, all playing this dangerous game of the great liar. I call it a dangerous game because no one can beat the liar at the game. You begin to play his game and we find ourselves captive to lie after lie after lie. Need I illustrate this in our time? He's having a heyday with the internet and the social media. Breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. The word simply means right relationship. Why wear righteousness? <laughs> because the enemy seeks to mess with relationships. He and his assistants seek to destroy our lives by ruining relationships, primarily by whispering lies about others into our ears, by telling us half-truths about others. Boots of peace. Why wear peace? <laughs> Because the enemy does not want peace to reign. As he is by nature a liar, he is also by nature a divider. Oh, this is awful. The enemy relishes in division and does everything to nurture division. Speaking lies to generate as much chaos as possible. Know anything about chaos? It's coming from the liar and the divider. And he nurtures this chaos so that one day he can ride into town as the great restorer of order. Only, ironically, this order is maintained by oppression and violence. The belt of truth, because our struggle is with the liar. The breastplate of righteousness, because our struggle is with the relationship destroyer. 
and the shoes of peace because our struggle is with the chaos inducer and the shield of faith. Why wear faith? (laughs) Because our struggle is with the one who wants to ruin faith. Faith is the target of the enemy's venom. He and his forces seek to destroy faith. Why? Because the enemy is jealous of anyone having faith in the living God. The enemy's a rebel, and he does everything he can to get faith put into him, to to get us to put our faith in him. So he sows suspicion about the goodness of God, as he did in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Did God say, the implication being, come on, really, Adam and Eve? Do you really believe that God said that if you try to live on your own, you would die? The enemy seeks to nurture doubt about the faithfulness of God, especially in hard times. Has he tried to do with Jesus during those 40 days in the wilderness? If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. I I hear Jesus, I, I hear the enemy saying to Jesus, some father you have, you're all alone in self-isolation. No food, no water. Seems to me you've been abandoned. Take charge of your life, Jesus. Use your powers to strike out on your own. Turn the stones into bread. It's what the spiritual forces of darkness want us to do. Put our trust in anything else but the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Helmet of salvation. Why wear salvation? (laughs) Because the enemy does not want humanity rescued from sin and evil and death. I don't know why. I've tried to search why. It's crazy. It reveals just how diabolical the opposition is. The enemy wants to keep humanity in bondage to the lies, to ruin relationships, to chaos and violence, to suspicion and doubt and fear. The enemy hates the world's savior. It's awful. He hates Jesus. Again, why? I don't know. I think it's because he knows he needs saving but he will not accept the fact because he wants to be able to save himself. And so out of a diabolical soul, he'll do everything he can to keep anyone else from being saved. So question three, how then do we wear this armor? How do we wear it in such a way that we can stand? Notice that there are five defensive pieces and two offensive pieces. First defensive piece, buckled truth around our waists. Oh boy. Take hold of the truth of the gospel, or or better yet, let the truth of the gospel take hold of you. The truth that Jesus is God's final revelation of God. The truth that Jesus is the true savior and Lord of the world. The truth that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for humans to have a relationship with a holy God. The truth that it is by living in dependence on him that we truly live truly human lives. Grasping the truth and then living the truth as best we can, doing the truth. This belt around our waist is both truth as doctrine and truth as character. We stand by standing with him who is the truth. I am the truth, says Jesus. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
We stand by surrendering to the spirit of truth. That's what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit three times in the night before he goes to the cross. He, the spirit of truth, will come and lead you into all truth. We stand by inviting the spirit to grab us at every level of our being with truth. Second defensive piece, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of right relationship. What guards our inner vitals in the cosmic struggle is having been made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ and then doing our best to be right with others. In his seeking to destroy relationships, the enemy accuses us of our sins. He is, as John says in the book of Revelation, the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He's always throwing our sins into our faces. And then he's always pointing out the sins of others. <laughs> and we stand in this struggle by claiming the righteousness of God, by telling the enemy, I have been made right with God by the blood of Jesus. You back off. <laughs> and telling the enemy, sure, those other people have sinned, but they too have been made right with God by the blood of Jesus, and I'm not going to let you destroy my relationships. We stand in the struggle by praying the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We stand in the struggle by claiming the great promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Third defense of peace, the shoes of the gospel of peace. We stand firm by standing in this peace that God has won for us in Jesus. And we stand firm by then being willing to make peace in the world. God's enemy and the principalities and powers are not threatened by soldiers with weapons of destruction. But they do tremble with soldiers who know and announce the peace won at the cross. I wonder if in referring to the shoes of peace, Paul had in mind that picture in Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, saying to Zion, your God reigns. Fourth defensive peace the shield of faith. In all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil, evil one. Flaming missiles, oh, well, that's a sobering image. It's a reality we all experience as I've already illustrated as we talked about the pieces of armor. Flaming missiles of lies, flaming missiles of suspicion, flaming missiles of accusation, flaming missiles of lust and hate and racial slander. Flaming missiles of doubt in the goodness and faithfulness of God. And what extinguishes those flaming missiles is faith, the shield of faith, the shield of trust, trust in truth and righteousness and peace of God. Now, this is what we see Jesus doing in his hand-to-hand -hand combat with the evil one in the wilderness. He stood, stood firm by faith in his father as he was facing all he was facing. Turn these stones into bread, says the tempter. No. I will obey my father, even if it means more days without bread. Jump off the cliff, says the tempter. 
to force God to fulfill his promise to you. No, I will trust my father even if I don't see any indication the promise is being fulfilled. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. No, I will worship and serve my father only even if it means I go to the cross. Fifth defensive piece, the helmet of salvation. We protect our heads and our minds by claiming the salvation of God in Jesus. Salvation are all three tenses, past, present, and future. In Jesus, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And we stand firm against the invisible powers by declaring to ourselves and then to the powers the gospel we've heard in the rest of Ephesians, declaring, I have been saved by Jesus. I'm forgiven by God through grace. I'm reconciled to God through grace. I'm adopted by God through grace. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit by grace and declaring I am being saved. The Spirit of God is working at me, transforming me into the image of Jesus. The Spirit is cleansing me and making me a fit dwelling for a holy God. The Spirit is using all the circumstances of my life to mold me into a new creation and then declaring in Jesus, I will be saved. <laughs> Along with the whole of creation, I will be saved from sin and death. History is moving toward a new creation and a new, a new heaven and a new earth. Terrorism, racism, violence, oppression, human trafficking, genocide, disease, and injustice will all come to an end at the feet of Jesus. I, who have been saved and am being saved, will be saved. Jesus commands my destiny. You back off. Now, I think you can see that all five of these defensive pieces of the armor turn out to be Jesus himself. That's why Paul exhorts us to be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord Jesus. I think we can paraphrase Paul by saying, stand firm by putting on Jesus. The belt of truth, Jesus. Jesus, the truth teller. The breastplate of righteousness, Jesus, the relationship restorer. The shoes of peace are Jesus, Jesus, the peacemaker. The helmet of salvation, Jesus, the Jesus who saves us. The shield of faith, Jesus, Jesus is the true believer. And then two offensive pieces. First, the sword of the spirit. The sword the spirit provides. And what is this sword? The word of God. We stand in the battle by taking up the word of God. We stand in the battle by standing on the word of God, as Jesus did in that 40-day battle in the wilderness. Three times he says to the enemies, enemy, it is written. Three times in response to the scheming of the evil one, it is written. To the temptation to turn stones into bread, Jesus said, it is written. Human beings do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To the temptation to throw himself off the cliff, forcing God to prove his faithfulness, Jesus says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To the temptation to win the kingdoms of the world by bowing down to the evil one and his ways, thus bypassing the cross, it is written, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God only. I hang on to that story in Luke 10. 
The story of Jesus sending out the four, 70 of his first disciples on a short-term mission project. And he tells them to simply announce the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near. The 70 obey. They simply speak the word of God. The kingdom of God has come near. The 70 then returned to Jesus with news about all that was happening as they spoke the word. People were healed. People were reconciled. People were freed from all forms of bondage. And then Jesus says to them, while you were doing that, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The 70 had been speaking to human beings, and human beings were responding to the word. But unknown to those 70 at the time, they were also speaking to the invisible rulers and powers. They too were responding, and they were falling. First offensive piece of the armor, hold on to the sword of the spirit. It is written. Second offensive piece, Pray at all times in the Spirit, which is what we see the Apostle Paul doing. He's always praying. Yes, he's wielding the sword with great compassion and boldness, but he's also praying. Always praying for his fellow believers and always praying for those not yet believers. Now, why should prayer be included in the armor? It seems kind of a pious thing to put into a, an armor in a battle. Why would prayer be included in the armor? Because prayer goes over the head of the invisible opposition. I'll say that again. Prayer goes over the head of the invisible opposition. Prayer recognizes that there is an invisible spiritual opposition and then goes over the head of the opposition. The world forces of darkness, as Paul calls them, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, as Paul calls them, act as though they have the last word. They do not. Jesus defeated them through his death and resurrection. And to pray then is to pray on Jesus' victory. It's to go over the head of the rulers and powers and bringing them before the one who does have the last word. This, by the way, is why the invisible powers do all they can to keep us from speaking the word and praying. Doing their diabolical best to keep disciples out of the word and off their knees. Because they know the power of the sword of the spirit and praying at all times in the spirit. One more time. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, the full armor, five defensive pieces, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation, and two offensive pieces, the sword of the Spirit, and praying at all times in the Spirit. And then we will be able to stand in the strength of the one who has already won. One day soon, we will be able to sing out loud 
The most appropriate response to Ephesians 6, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But at least today, we can hear the hymn sung for us and over us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For his, for his, for his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.